The following is a special edition of Rick Flynn Presents. Hey everybody, it's Rick Pamplin. I'm the writer-director of the new movie, Burt Reynolds, The Last Interview. It's the last Burt Reynolds film. I think it's going to teach you all kinds of interesting things about Burt Reynolds that you never knew. If you're a Burt Reynolds fan, if you're a movie fan, if you just want to watch an uplifting, uh, positive movie, we would love to have you tune in and listen to my interview and the podcast with the amazing Rick Flynn. You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn presents. And now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Station to station. Hi, everyone. One Rick to another Rick today. It's Rick Flynn in Cincinnati, and I'm proud to go down to Palm Beach, Florida with Rick Pamplin. And Rick has produced a motion picture that people are talking about. Why are they talking about it? Well, you're about to find out right here on this show. The film is uncut, unscripted, and uncensored, and it is entitled Burt Reynolds, The Last Interview. Why do they call it that, Rick? Well, you'll never believe it. But the reason they call it that is because it is the last interview with an icon in show business, especially to the millions and millions of women who adored this male named Burt Reynolds. And that is the film we are talking about today with the director of the film, Rick Pamplin. Rick, come on in here. A pleasure to meet you, sir. And congratulations on a film, Burt Reynolds, The Last Interview, which I want you to tell me all about, and we're going to let the people know. Get on in here and say hello. All right. Thank you very much, Rick, and thank you for that very nice introduction. Very, very good. You're down in Florida in Palm Beach area, and I know that is really the stomping grounds, if you will, of Bert when he was alive, especially toward the final part of his life. Am, am I correct? Absolutely. Uh, my relationship with Bert Reynolds was an almost lifelong obsession. And, you know, I grew up in Michigan, you know, I'm very familiar with Cincinnati and all the great people in the Midwest. But, you know, as a kid, I wanted to go to Hollywood. I wanted to make movies. And when I went out to Hollywood, you know, one of the, the keys of getting a movie made, you know, is getting an A-list movie star attached. And I was a huge fan of Burt Reynolds, not only of serious films like Deliverance, but also the fun stuff like Smokey and the Bandit, you know, and other things that he had done. And uh, I I was in Hollywood for a number of years when Burt was there. And I had a project and I went through layers of managers and agents and contacts. And I never could quite, even though I had a movie studio, at one point interested in a project. We were going to do a, uh, a feature film biography of Spade Cooley, the country western singer who had actually beaten his wife to death, gone to jail, 
served his time and then got out and he was a half-breed Indian country western singer. And we just thought this was the greatest part uh, for Bert. And we acquired the rights from his uh, Spade Cooley's manager and we were developing it for Bert Reynolds and Sally Field. And, you know, we went through all these agents and managers. And then uh, Ray Stark at Columbia Studios got interested and they were doing Annie, the movie. And so, you know, we would go to meetings out there and Ray was going to have dinner with Bert in New York. And one time the associate producer, Norm Gann, who was a big you know fan of the, our project, uh, called me and I couldn't hear him in the background. There was all this commotion. I said, Norm, where are you? He said, I'm on the set of Annie and we're shooting in New Jersey. I said, oh, and then somebody kept yelling and yelling at him. And I said, Norm, who's yelling at you? And he goes, that's John Houston. I said, oh, okay. So, and then we would go to these meetings, Rick, and we would go out to the Columbia Studios and we'd start to go to the meeting. Like, oh, we want to show you something. And they would have all the dresses and the costumes from Annie. And we're going to a meeting about getting Bert to do this film. And they'd have me sit there for like an hour showing me all the costumes from Annie that they were getting ready to ship. And I mean, it was just crazy stuff. So I pursued Bert for years and years and years. And by accident, I ended up going to Universal Studios in Orlando. And Bert, you know, left LA and ended up coming down to Jupiter, Florida. And we still didn't quite connect, but I would have friends of mine that knew him, people that had met him, and they said, oh, you two should, you know, and I'm, well, I'm trying to make that happen. So I moved to Jupiter. There was a museum for Burt Reynolds, it, and they had the canoe from Deliverance and all the movie props. And I would go to all these events, and they'd say Burt was going to be here. And of course, Burt never showed up. And one time they said, oh, Burt's down the hall in his office. He'll be here in a minute. And I guess they did this to kind of get people to come to things or whatever. So I I, I said, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. So I walked down the hall, and, and there was Burt's office. And, you know, I was a young, brazen guy. So I kind of pushed the door open, and Burt wasn't in the office. It was an empty office. So I pursued. Bert, and then I, I, I've got a bunch of stories, but I'll, I'll just tell you a couple quick ones. I was out in Las Vegas doing a TV series called Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, and I was the uh, head writer and the associate director. And we were staying in the Riviera Hotel, and there was a guy named Joey Villa who was a comedian of this show called Splash. And Joey and I became friends, and I wrote some jokes for the show and different things. And and Joey said one night we were at dinner. He says, "Hey, do you want to meet Burt Reynolds?" And I said. What do you mean? He said, Bert is shooting a movie called Heat, and I got cast in it. And he said, uh, I'm going to go over to the set. They're shooting a, a night shoot. Would you like to go along with me and, and meet Burt Reynolds? And I said, of course I would. So we go, Joey Villa and I, the comedian from the Riviera Hotel, we go over to the place where they're shooting to the set. And there's ambulances out front with their lights on. There's police cars. There's all kinds of people. I thought, boy, when Burt Reynolds does a movie, I mean, he really does a movie. So we go up and, and we start walking through. And as we do, they, they're rolling a guy out on a stretcher and he's going, oh, and he's holding his face. I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, that's the director. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, he and Bert didn't see eye to eye in a scene. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you know, Bert punched him and broke his jaw and they're taking him to the hospital. And I went, oh, my God. So we went to the set and I could see Bert and, you know, the set probably had 100 people 
you know, on crew and cameras and all this. And Joey walks in and says, oh, you want to meet Bert? I said, whoa, 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 I don't know if this is the right time to meet Bert, you know. And so they had a big Panavision camera on sticks. And I kind of like backed up against the wall and just kind of hid behind the camera and the camera. I said to Joey, well, in a little bit. And, he, and then he'd come over and he'd go, oh, come on, you want to meet Bert? I said, ah, I you could feel the tension. So Anyway, I saw Bert, but I didn't really meet him that night. When I later met Bert, I told him the story and he laughed. He says, yeah, that wouldn't have been a good night to have met me. So I, I was wise. So then finally, I was down here in Jupiter trying to get films made. And I had an executive producer who was very good friends with a restaurant owner who was Bert's best friend, and Bert would eat dinner there every night. So I wasn't aware of this. I had had lunch at the restaurant, and um, it, it's a great restaurant. It's called Jetty's, right across from the lighthouse on the intercoastal. And half the restaurant is a deck right on the water, and then the other half is inside. And Bert was good friends with the owner, Jim, and he would come there and, and eat dinner almost every night. And so for my birthday, this executive producer's wife took my wife and I to dinner at Jetty's and they sat us next to Burt Reynolds. And then Jim came over and he said, happy birthday, Rick. And he said, not only is your dinner on the house, you, you know, you're a great guy and we've heard great things about you, but you know, I seated you next to Burt Reynolds so you two can talk. And Burt wished me happy birthday and, you know, was very gracious. And it was just, it was a very moving and emotional moment. And when I got to know Burt, he was like that with every person. And he he took everybody, no matter what their position in life was, he was interested. He was sincere. You know, when you talk to a lot of Hollywood people, and I know a lot of famous people, they'll look at you in the eye, but the eye is looking around the room. Is there somebody else more famous or somebody more important I want to go talk to? But Bert was just the sweetest guy, the greatest guy. He was he was a little beat up. He had trouble walking. He took little baby steps when he walked off the deck and stuff. He was with a lady having dinner. But anyway, that was that was the beginning of it. And then I was able to shoot this movie, Movie Money Confidential, with him. And then the new movie was an outgrowth of the first movie. But I should stop and let you ask questions. So that's kind of a kind of a long answer. I apologize. No, absolutely not. Now, I want to go back to your original story you just told. Did they place him under arrest at that time or no? No, but the guy, the director sued him. And I think it was like he had to pay like a quarter of a million dollars or something. Oh, I believe um, that. But, I believe that. Yeah. 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 Oh. But it, it was widely publicized. But I came very close many times to meeting Bert and didn't actually meet him till I was here in Jupiter. So what happened is I was making a movie. We had gotten the rights to a book called Filmmakers and Financing. And what it was, was I wanted to encourage, and I always want to encourage people to break through, to you know live their dreams. And one of the things about the movie business, and I've spent my whole life in it, is, you know, it's, it's a lot of a closed society. It's, it's like a high school click with money. And it's very hard to get in the movie business. And it, it, there's a lot of nepotism. There's, there, there was a lot of, you know, stereotypes and prejudice and keeping people out. And, you know, my father was a postman in Flint, Michigan, who had served in World War II and was shot in the head and laid in a foxhole for three days. He got the Bronze Star and the Purple Heart. He recovered and but he was never, you know, he never really got over it. 
but he was a postal worker. My mother was a public school teacher. I had no connections to Hollywood whatsoever. So when I went out to Los Angeles, I had worked for the CBS uh, TV station in Flint, Saginaw, Bay City, Michigan. And I had been an on-the-air reporter, and I had worked there for a year and a half, and I had also edited the University of Michigan Flint newspaper, and I won a, a number of writing awards and editing awards. So I went out to Hollywood in the summer, and it was very difficult for me to get my career going. And as a child, I had, was born with a lot of physical afflictions and things that had to be dealt with. And I was in the hospital a lot. And I was an overweight, pudgy, sickly kid who watched a lot of television, read a lot of books, didn't really get to participate in sports and outdoor things until I was a teenager in high school. And I went away to military school. My parents separated and neither one really wanted me. And they sent me to military school. And I just Something happened to me that, you know, at several points, doctors would say, you're not going to live to be 20. You better enjoy life now. And when I went to military school and was completely on my own, I just got this idea in my head that I'm going to go pursue the movie business. This is what I want to do. I don't care what anybody tells me I can or can't do. So, you know, I ended up, you know, starting off my career in my hometown. And I, by the way, people always say to me a, a quick thing, how do you get in the movie? Business? The very first thing I ever got in the movie, first job, first money, I was delivering newspapers for the Detroit Free Press. And I was able to call the Detroit office and I got the film critic, Susan Stark, on the phone. And I said, I work for the Detroit Free Press. I'm Rick Pamplin. I'd like to have a meeting. And she didn't, she had no idea who I was. So she set up a meeting. I drove from Flint to Detroit in the middle of winter. And I went down to the Detroit Free Press office. And I sat down with Susan Stark, who was a wonderful lady and this critic that I loved and had read you know, much of my childhood, her, her reviews. And I said, I want to know how to get in the movie business. And she said, what do you do for the Detroit Free Press? I said, I deliver newspapers all night long. And I have like 10 carriers and I put your newspapers in machines and I collect, you know, nickels and dimes. And she said, oh my God, she said, and so she spent about an hour or two hours with me and gave me some of the greatest advice in my life. It was wonderful. And the thing she told me is go find a weekly newspaper and go, go to the movies, see a movie, write a review, send it in. And she said, you know, a lot of great filmmakers, you know, Peter Bogdanovich and Francois Truffaut and all these people started as critic. And you don't have any money. You don't have any connections. And just start meeting people in the movie business. So I, I went to the theater and I bought a ticket to a movie with Charles Grodin and, and uh, Sybil Shepherd called The Heartbreak Kid. And I wrote a review and I mailed it to this weekly newspaper. And about a week later, I opened the paper and there's my review published. And so I called them up and I said, wow, you, you published my review. They said, do you have any more? I said, no. And they said, well, we love them and we'd like to publish them. So I went out, I think I saw 10 movies. It was really funny, Rick. I went to I, any movie theater anywhere near, you know, Grand, it was the name of the newspaper is Grand Blank Evening News, which was a suburb of Flint. 
I drove all over Genesee County, Michigan, going to every theater, watching every movie. I wrote about 10 reviews. I sent them in and they kept publishing, you know, my movie reviews. Then somebody said to me, aren't you supposed to get paid for this? So I, I called the editor back. Her name was Kathy. And I said, you know, did you like my, she goes, I love your, we love your writing. We love your reviews. Keep them coming. I said, well, aren't I supposed to get paid for this? And there was this pause. And she said, yeah, I'd like to meet you. Could you come in the office? So as it turned out, they wanted to start a entertainment section. In the old days, weekly newspapers would have a insert entertainment section with TV listings and everything going on in the arts and movie reviews and TV stuff and, you know, theater and all that stuff and music. So they made me the arts editor of the newspaper. It's the greatest job in my life. I'm getting paid to go see plays and to interview celebrities and watch movies and write movie reviews. And that, you know, was how I started my career. And I didn't know anybody. And they would do screenings in Detroit and they would invite me to come down and interview the stars and things. And I met a, a bunch of different actors and actresses and people in the movie business. And I was very enamored of it. And then one day they said, oh, they opened it. There's a CBS TV station that opened and uh, it's going to be huge. And we want you to go do a story on it. So I went to this TV station and I went in and I interviewed the news director, the program director, and I took some pictures and stuff. And I wrote an article in my little entertainment section. And the programming director called me up and he said, um, and I was really impressed. He was from Georgia and he drove a Porsche. I was very impressed with his car because I didn't see a lot of Porsches in Flint, Michigan. And so he called me up and he said, I want to take you to lunch. I said, well, about what? And he said, well, I want to talk to you at lunch. I said, are we going to, are you going to drive your Porsche? And he goes, yes. I go, can I drive your Porsche to lunch? So I, I went back up and I, I went to lunch just so I could drive a Porsche and go to lunch with this guy. And he offered me a job as a TV news reporter. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm a movie guy. I, I'm all about movies. And he said, how much money are you making? And I said, well, that's, you know, I'm happy. I love my job. I love one of It's my dream job. And he said, we'll double your salary, whatever it is. And we'll give you a car and we'll give you health insurance and we'll give you an expense account. And you'll be on TV every night and you can do as many movie reviews on television as you want as part of your job. You can be the film critic of our CBS station and we're in the 42nd biggest market in the country. So that's how I became a TV newsman. And then eventually they fired me and I was supposed to speak to a journalism class at University of Michigan Flint. I called up the guy and I said, listen, they fired me after a year and a half. I'm probably the worst person to talk to your students because I don't like TV news and it's all, you know, it's a big mess. And he said, no, no, that would be great. Come, come. I want to take you to lunch. So I went and I gave this speech at University of Michigan. And this wonderful guy, Greg Waters, took me to lunch and said, I want you to be editor of the student newspaper. And I said, no. And I'll tell you one thing I've learned in my life, Rick. Every great job that I've ever done or was offered, I initially said no to. So I think one of the secrets of life is always say no, because then in the end, it, 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 they'll come around and it, they'll sweeten the pot. But I've always said no, because I said, no, I don't, I'm not going back to school. He said, well, you should finish your degree, you know, and we can get you a scholarship and give you a salary and an office and, you know, as staff and you should edit this newspaper. And I'm like, no. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, yeah, I think that I'll do that. So then I became the editor of the newspaper that gave me money and a lot more um, access to people. And Rex Reed came, the movie critic and different people. And, um, 
you know, I, I decided in the summer to go to Hollywood. I accidentally moved in next door to a guy in June of 1976 named Sylvester Stallone. Nobody would heard of. And on the second day I was in Hollywood, he came up to me. I was at the swimming pool. And the manager, who had been a stuntman for Errol Flint, came up and said, I want you to meet Sylvester Stallone. He's, a, he's got a new movie, and he wanted to meet you. I told him you wanted to be in the movies. And Stallone you know, was about 50 pounds overweight in a, in a yellow cotton T-shirt, green satin shorts, dark hair parted in the middle. And he was deformed on the left side of his mouth. He used to drool when he talked. And he goes, oh, yeah, Rick, I got this little low-budget fight film, uh, Rocky. You want to come see it? <laughs> oh, and I was no. like, yeah, sure. So that then was how that door opened. I mean, I was in Hollywood on the second day uh, being there. I met Sylvester Stallone. So I immediately started writing articles about Sylvester Stallone and Talia Shire. And then he got an after Rocky came out, I'd spent about six months was live. He got a picture called Fist, which Norman Jewison directed. Rod Steiger was in it. And it was really the Jimmy Hoffa story, but it was, you know, that was a fictional version. And I was from Michigan and I knew a lot about Jimmy Hoffa. In fact, I'd gone to a prep school after I got out of military school, which was like a block or two from the restaurant that Jimmy Hoffa was abducted from. So I knew a lot about the stuff. So Stallone got me a position on a fist and I got to, that was my first big Hollywood movie. You know, I got to read lines with Rod Steiger and, and I got to know Norman Jewison, the director who had made one of my favorite movies of all time, the Thomas Crown Affair. It was great. I got to be an extra and I got to go to the studio and work with these people. And we went on location and, and um, they went to Dubuque, Iowa to do the factory scenes. I didn't go for that but I did the locations in LA and it just one thing led to another. And I went to Hollywood thinking I was going to be an actor, even though all my background had been in writing. So, you know, I think I was in love with, you know, beautiful young actresses and all of that. So on that second day that I was in Hollywood, when I met Stallone, I went and signed up for acting classes at the Lee Strasberg Institute. So for about two years, you know, I got little small acting jobs and Barnaby Jones and, you know, a picture with Dustin Hoffman, Straight Time and Fist with Stallone and, you know, and, and basically what they call under five, you know, you have under five lines so that they can pay you as an extra. And in those days, it was fifty-two fifty a day and a cold box lunch. That was the pay. And then if you spoke over five lines, you got more money. But what happened was I was on a TV show and a, a lot of people listening may not read. These are old shows from the 70s, but there used to be a cop show called Del Vecchio with Judd Hirsch and Charlie Hayde. And there was a shootout in a liquor store. And I was an extra. And the way the extras would work, the assistant director would come up to you and say, yeah, do you have any special skills? Or do you have any extra wardrobe? Or whatever they were asking you know, you to do, you basically dealt with the assistant director. And so they say, I said, well, what about the shootout? And he said, well, what about it? I said, well, you know, I went to military school and I'm a second lieutenant. I did two years of ROTC and I'm very adept at weapons and I have a sharpshooter medal and blah, blah, blah. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. I said, I'd like to be in the shootout scene. And he said, really? I said, yeah. So I went in and they had these squibs where they would blow up, 
you know, oatmeal and cereal boxes. And they had the uh, cooler case with the the sugar glass, you know, that, that's made out of sugar that explodes. And so they put me in the scene and I got a line that, that uh, Charlie Hayde was going up to the Judd Hirsch was outside the liquor store. Charlie was in it. I was one of the shoppers in the store and I was by the cooler and the cereal. And then I yelled to Charlie, the guy's got a gun or it's a robbery or whatever the line was. And then there was a shootout. But because I was so adept, you know, I didn't flinch. I knew how to act around gun play and all that. Well, at the end of the day, you get an extra $200, which is called hazard pay. So now instead of being a $52.50 actor, I'm a $252.50 actor. And I was like, whoa, this is great. So anytime there was a shootout, I did a thing. I did a scene with uh, uh, Buddy uh, Epson and uh, Barnaby Jones. I'm walking down the side of a building on a staircase and Buddy comes up, gets out of the car and there's a guy hiding behind a rock. And I, I think this was my line at about five shows. He's got a gun, you know, as so I, I got that one line to yell at, at Buddy. And then uh, the guy shoots at me and I duck and, you know, roll down the stairs and, I'll, you know, $252.50. So whenever there was a shootout in a 1970s TV show, and that was like most of them. I was always volunteering to get that hazard pay, but it was a great experience. People always say to me, "What?" and I always say, whatever you, I, I speak at colleges, you know, and I do, you know, interviews like this. And people say, how do you get in the movie business? Well, first of all, learn every job. The greatest apprenticeship I could have ever had was working as an actor and an extra. I worked as a boom man. I worked as a location scout. I worked as a writer. I worked as a rewrite guy, a script doctor. I worked as a producer. I worked whatever job, you know, I'd have a friend that would be making a, a movie and call me up and say, hey, do you want to be a location scout? And I would give the standard Rick Pamplin line. No, of course not. Uh, well, I'm doing this picture and I need a couple location scouts. And this friend, mutual friend of ours, Joe, wants to do it, but I need two of you. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. He said, well, you just drive around all day. You go eat. We pay for all your expenses. You know, we, we buy a nice lunch. You take some Polaroid pictures and you find some locations. And you find out would they be open to making a movie there? And he said, it pays $500 a day plus expenses. And I was like, wow, location scout. I think I'm a location scout. And the guy that hired me was Mike Frankenheimer Jr., whose father had run Columbia Studios for years. And Mike had been involved in one of my favorite James Bond movies. And he, he had had enormous success. You know, he did Diamonds Are Forever. And he is quite an accomplished guy. So I was a location scout. And it was a great job. And But, but I learned all of these things. I go to these film schools and I go, how many want to be directors? And 90% hold up their hands. And I go, how many know lighting? How many know cameras? How, how many know makeup? How many know wardrobe? How many how many people know any of this stuff? And then I I'll ask them two or three terms, and they and I'll go. You guys have got to go learn all this stuff. You can't just go to school and watch movies. So I never went to film school. My film school was studying acting with Lee Strasberg, working with Stallone. I worked on a Dustin Hoffman picture, and it was a really interesting scene. And I love Dustin Hoffman. He's a great actor. And so they come up to me and they go, all right, he's, he's getting out of prison. The picture is called Straight Time. He's getting out of prison. He's going to get off a bus. You're at the bus station and you're going to walk by because I was 6'4 and a tall guy. And you're going to bump his shoulder slightly. And he's going to stop and you're going to stop and you're going to give each other a look because he just got out of jail. And it's like, is he going to get in a fight with you and go back or is he going to, you know, but you're just going to tap him on his shoulder. 
I said, great. All right. Should I go talk to Dustin? No, 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 no. You can't talk to Dustin. I said, what do you mean? I'm going to be in a scene and bump him and I can't. I said, well, aren't we going to rehearse? He goes, no. And you can't look at him and you can't be in his sight line. I said, okay. We did 32 takes, Rick. 32 takes. I couldn't speak to Dustin Hoffman. I couldn't be in his sight line, but I bumped him on the shoulder 32 times. So anyway, uh, and I think, I think, I think that shot is like less than three seconds in the final cut of the movie. But anyway, it's Hollywood. What an experience to learn all this, to, to be on these sets. And, you know, when, during the pandemic, you know, I always felt like, you know, I haven't had a big, great career. I'm not Stanley Kubrick. I'm not Steven Spielberg. And during the pandemic, when I had a lot of time to sit around, I realized how great my life has been, how lucky I've been, how blessed I've been, how good people were to me. And I've just thanked God profusely every day for the life that I was this little sickly kid who got to go to Hollywood, who got to do all these things, meet all these people, work with these people. And most of the people at the top, the really successful ones, Sylvester Stallone is a great guy. And I knew him before he was famous and after he was famous. And I met Jim Cameron. We were getting started together. And Jim and I have been friends for years. And we kind of broke in at the same time. And anytime I've ever needed anything, Jim just does it. You know, he's been so supportive. And I've I've been there for him. He was cutting a picture called The Abyss at 20th Century Fox. And he called up one night and he said, I need you to come look at this film. It's three and a half hours. The studio's trying to take the film away. And uh, I I, I need you to come give me input. And he asked a mutual friend of ours. And and we went and we sat in, I think it was the Cary Grant screening room or whatever it was. And we watched this magnificent, beautiful film. And then we had to tell Jim, Jim, it's too long. You got to cut it. And I was so honored that he would ever do that, that he, that I would be part of that. And I interviewed Jim the Saturday morning. I, I also, then I fell into becoming a teacher, you know, after I went through all of this, you know, stuff and decided I didn't want to be an actor. I ended up finishing my bachelor's degree. And then I went on and got a master's degree in creative writing. Then I graduated and nobody would read my scripts. So I became homeless and I lived in a Chevy Nova hatchback in the parking lot of a grocery store in Santa Monica, California, while I was trying to get, always trying to get in the movie business. And so eventually I was able to get back into the business and I eventually sold a script to Disney. But the way I did it was in the LA Times, they used to publish in the classifieds, they had a list of like everything that was free to do in LA that day. And I would go to everything, Shakespeare in the park, poetry reading, opening of the free clinic, wherever it said free refreshments. So one night they were having a introduction to screenwriting class. And I showed up, there were about 20 people in the room. It was at Sherwood Oaks Experimental College at the Cornet Theater on La Cienega in Los Angeles. And they said, uh, has anybody in here ever wrote a script? I raised my hand. Has anybody in here ever sold anything? I raised my hand. They said, can we see you in the hall? I thought, oh no, you know, they're going to throw me out because the, the room is packed and I'm, I'm not really a beginner. So I went out and they said, the teacher that we hired to do the class just got a writing assignment at 20th Century Fox and can't teach the class. Would you like to teach the class? And it, my typical answer, no, no, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to teach screenwriting. They said, but don't you have a master's degree in it? Yeah. And you've written a script. Yeah. And you graduated. Yeah. Well, we need a teacher. And I'm like, no. I, and they said, look, it pays $800. Now, remember, I'm homeless. 
Yes. I'm living in my car selling blood twice a week at a place on, on Sunset Boulevard where for $20, they'll take a pint of my blood and give me a little bag of, of fruit and juice and crackers. I'm living on $40 a week. So she, the woman, Mary Kay, says to me, it pays $800. And if you go back in there and teach this class tonight, I'll give you four $100 bills at the end of the class and then the other 400 when you finish the class. I said, let's go. I'm a screenwriting teacher. Let's go. So I went in for three hours and told every Sylvester Stallone story I knew. You know, God bless Sylvester. And I told how he did Rocky, what it was like, what he what he went through to get the picture made, how I knew him, all the things I'd learned. And I was totally, totally, totally out of stories. And then they gave me the $400 and I was panicked. I was like, now what am I going to teach? So the next day I go over to the Cornette Theater and the place is all closed up and everything. And I'm like, I'm going to give them the money back and tell them I, I, I'm a fraud. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do screenwriting. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. One of the things I did is I went and saw a sneak preview of the movie, The Big Chill. And so I, I went back to the grocery store where I was living in the parking lot. And I we had pay phones in those days. You'd put, you know, 10 cents or 20 cents in. And I called the studio that made the picture. And I said, I'd like to talk to Larry Kasdan, the writer, director of The Big Chill. And they, who is this? And I've been calling these people for months and can't get past the operator. I said, hi, my name is Rick Pamplin. I'm a screenwriting teacher at Sherwood Oaks Experimental College. I'd like to invite Mr. Kasdan to speak at my class next week. Hold on. This voice comes and goes, Rick, Larry Kasdan. Hey, did you see the movie? Yeah, I said, yeah, I, I'm really intrigued by the big chill. I said, it doesn't have a traditional three-act structure, and it's very interesting. And I said, I'm teaching this screenwriting class. I would love to have you come you know, speak at my class. He said, I'm going to Montana tomorrow. I'm scouting locations for a movie that I'm doing out in Montana. But he said, how many students do you? I thought it was about 20. He said, why don't I send you over about 40 or 50 passes the night you want me to come speak? We're screening the movie here at the studio. Why don't you bring your class and I'll send you that. And do you have a copy of the script? I said, no. He said, I'll messenger you a copy of the script. And he said, uh, you know, make copies, have the students read the script, watch the movie. And then when I get back, you know, I'll come, I'll come, you know, speak. And he said, now, where are you? Well, I can't say I'm going to pay phone in the parking lot of the Safeway grocery store in Santa Monica. So I said, oh, I'm at, I'm at the Coronet Theater over in, in uh, La Cienega. He said, all right, well, I'll have it messenger. You'll have it within the hour. So then I'm breakneck driving back to the school. And of course, I get there and it's all locked up. And I'm like, okay. And then Bruno Kirby, I don't know if you remember him, the actor from The Godfather and City Slickers. He's downstairs pacing for an audition. And he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and he goes, hey, do you know how to read lines? I said, yeah. He said, who have you ever read lines with? I said, Rod Steiger on the fist. He said, what are you, an actor? I said, I used to be. So I start reading the lines with him. And he said, you keep, you're jumpy. What's going on? I said, oh, I'm expecting this package, but I don't have access to the school, but I got to get the package. Bruno said, let me handle it. So Bruno Kirby, the guy comes up in this little car, gets out. He's got a package. Bruno puts his arm around me. He goes, hey, hey, is that for, uh, is that for my buddy Rick here? He says, here, come here. He says, I'm taking him to lunch and everything. The guy's looking at Bruno. Kirby going, I know this guy. This is like a well-known actor. And uh, he's looking at me and I go, yeah, that's him. That's him. That's, that's, that's him. And so 
Bruno gets me to sign for the thing and I get the package and there's passes and there's, you know, a script and everything. And that night I went to the school and I went to the woman that hired me and I said, look what I have. Everybody, there's enough in here for the faculty and the students. We can all go to the studio next week. We can all see this new movie. And I have a copy of the script for the students to study. And she said, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And I said, but I, I need something. And she said, what? I said, the school's closed during the day. She says, right. I said, but, but I need a typewriter and a copy machine and a telephone because I need to write scripts and I don't have an office right now. And if you'll let me have a key to the offices, I'll answer the phone and I'll register students and you can be open all day long if you'll just give me access to those things. So they said, yes, great, terrific. So now I had an office, a typewriter, a Xerox machine and a telephone. I'm not making this up, Rick. It's two a days fascinating. after doing it. The this is what show two business days, is days. made of right here. This is how you do it. That's okay, how you do I'm it. Yeah. Yes. The, all right. So I'm almost at the end of the story. So I, I, I go and I answer the phone and there's a guy from Houston, Texas. He owns some kind of landscaping business. He wants to come to LA and he wants to hire a screenwriter. And I said, well, I'm in charge of the screenwriting program here at the college. Uh, I, I write screenplays. I have a master's. I'd love to. So he flies out. He takes me to lunch at Mommy's Home, you know, which was the big hot thing where Orson Welles would eat lunch. And, you know, Patrick Terrell and Wolfgang Spock, Spock uh, uh, Puck. Wolfgang Puck was the chef. I'll get it out. And so Mommy's Own was the big place everybody went. So I, I took him there. And he met Wolfgang and he met, you know, Patrick and Orson Welles said hi and everything. You know, he said, we got to go buy a tape recorder. He said, I, I got a bunch of other interviews, but you're, I'm hiring you. So we go buy a tape recorder and he says, uh, where are you living? I said, well, I, I'm, I'm sort of in between places. I'm, I'm over kind of a flop house place on Sunset. I got a night to night room where a lot of out of work actors, my friend Robert Forster stayed there, uh, Chuck Mitchell from Porky's, a lot of the actors were there. So I had taken my $400 and got me a, a room and a hot shower and a bed. And he said, well, shoot, I reserved a suite at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, Elvis Presley's old suite, $800 a night. And frankly, uh, I'm done. I'm ready to hire you. And uh, he says, uh, do you want to stay in the hotel for a week? He says, you could have the room. I paid for it on my American Express. I said, well, we kind of need to agree what, what, you know, he said, well, you're going to write my movie. I said, okay. He says, how much, he says, how long is it going to take you? And I go, a year. I'm making this up. I don't know what I'm saying because <laughs> I'm thinking I want to get I want to get paid for a year. And he goes, "What does a screenwriter make?" And again, I have no idea. I go two thousand a month in expenses. You know, I was like a like a film noir private eye. Two grand a month at my expenses. He goes, "Well, shoot, dang, let's do that deal right now." He said, "I'll give you four thousand dollars right now for the first uh, month and the second month." And he said, "Go." to the hotel, take me back to the hotel, give me my stuff, drive me out to the airport. And he said, I'll send you 2000 a month and just send whatever your expenses are. I'll pay your expenses. And I thought, this is crazy. So we go to the front desk of Beverly Wilshire Hotel. And this guy, his name was Steve. He says, uh, this is Mr. Pamplin. And he says, uh, please give him all the, you know, signing privileges. Give him a key. He's going to stay in my suite. I've been called back to Texas on business. And he said, he said to me, get a massage, have room service, whatever you want. Go get a haircut. And uh, he said, enjoy yourself. And uh, he said, uh, get started on our script. I said, all right, I, I will. Took him to the airport. So within a period of two weeks, let's say, I've gone from living in a Chevy 
Nova hatchback in the parking lot of a grocery store, living on $40 a week from giving blood and some free food they give me, to staying in an $800 uh, suite, having a job as a screenwriting teacher, having unlimited expenses at the Beverly Wilshire for a week, and making 2000 a month as a screenwriter. And that's the beginning of my, that's how I got in Hollywood. And I never, once, once all that happened, I never got out. And then while I was teaching, I met a guy and his name was Robert Cosberg and we became partners for nine years and he became vice president of Goober Peters at Warner Brothers and he would take the projects and pitch them and he sold a, a project of mine to Rodney Dangerfield for a Disney film for Jeff Katzenberg and over the next nine years we sold about 65 movies to studios and whatever and I was a writer and uh, a development person and a teacher and it was unbelievable and and, and it just kept blossoming. So that's kind of how I did it. And I don't know why I got off on that, but that's my story. Those are fascinating, fascinating tales. And, you know, they've had me in the darn classes of, of these broadcasting schools and so forth. And they've called me in the office and said, look, Rick, do not tell them that in radio you can be working and they switch the format, and they sell the station, and then everybody gets fired. Don't tell them that because it'll dissuade them from telling their friends to come and roll and to become a DJ. And I, it upset me when they said that because I have preached religiously, do not specialize. If they need someone to do A, B, or C job, do it. And don't ask the questions. If you go specializing and you say, I only do this, I only do that, that's when the problem happens. You'll never put the bread and the butter on top of the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. I, I've learned over the years two things. Number one, talk to everybody, listen to everybody. And number two, eat when served. Isn't when that people right? people offer you an opportunity, eat when served. And I see so many of my friends during the pandemic, we're going to wait it out. We had made our film right before the pandemic and we sold our film during the Oh, no, no, you can't sell your film during the pandemic. Well, we did. This is Movie Money Confidential, the first Burt Reynolds film I made. And we went out in the pandemic and we sold the film. And my producers, Maggie, my wife, who's also my producer and production designer, and Scott DuPont, who's my other producer, we went out and we sold our movie during the pandemic when the half of show business was shut down. And, you know... If you, I listen to everybody and you got to learn all the rules so you then you can go break them. And we sold it. And then we had a streaming offer. And I, you know, it's a whole new business now. Two, one third of all the theaters have closed. People don't go to theatrical movies like they used to. And we hope it comes back. But in the meantime, you know, we all have to make a living. So I embraced streaming and we sold our movie. We had a terrific experience and it came out on Comcast and Amazon and all of these great places. And they did a great job. And American Airlines bought the film. We're on every American Airlines national, international flight. It's been tremendous. And then we got on these other channels with commercials after we did the first run, the Tubies and the the free freebies or whatever they're called. All these channels are unbelievable. And so I love, you know, all the streaming world because I think it gives a great opportunity for independent filmmakers. It's just been a terrific run. And I also, the other motto I have, Rick, is 
never stop being a student, never stop learning. That's so true. Do not stop learning because there are 16-year-old kids right now that know more about that laptop computer than you or I do, and you can learn from them. Believe it or not, never quit learning. When you think you know it all is when the problem starts. Every single thing I learned about making films at CBS when I worked at the TV station or at in Hollywood is 100% obsolete. The cameras, the equipment, the lighting, everything, it's all new. I On, on the, the film that I have out now, Movie Money Confidential, uh, the average crew member's age was 29. I was the oldest person on the crew. I had to learn about 4K. I had to learn about glider cameras. I had to learn about drones. I had to have these 20-something kids reteach the entire movie business to me how to make a film, that part of it. And I loved it. And I loved every bit of it. The way they score the movie, the way they, every part of the movie business, completely different. And in 10 years or five years, it'll be different again. You have to keep learning and soaking it up and be a lifelong student. And you, you never get to a point in show business where you know enough. You just have to keep going. And to me, that's fascinating. I love it. I, I think it's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, certain things are true, you know, about writing a movie script or about an actor giving a performance. But all of the technology is 100% different. And if you don't stay on top of it, you're going to become as obsolete as a typewriter. That is so true. You know what? I I couldn't agree with you more. I had a college professor in college that was my journalism teacher who just also had the, uh, he was the editor of our town paper in the city where I lived. And he also taught at the college and he took the entire class on a tour of where they printed the actual newsprint paper on these gigantic three-story high machines where you would see the newsprint rolling down with the and then the, the cutters would cut the the paper to size and he said well we just had all this done oh within the last six months and next year about this time we're expecting it all to be practically obsolete Wow. Yeah. Even in the newspaper industry, when they were printing the papers back when it was profitable, not when it was losing its shirt, like what they're doing today, they could not keep the standard high enough. It was constantly going and going. When I began in this business, we had to go out and buy recording tape. If I needed that tape on the desk of person A, B, or C, I had to go and FedEx it or UPS it or drive it there myself if it was in the same city or town or close. And today, I can talk to you like I'm talking right now and email you any announcement that you would need. It's fascinating, and I have no tape to worry about. It's the most amazing thing. I just sit back and watch it change and smile. I love every bit of it, you know. Well, you know, in my business, the movie business, this is the greatest opportunity for other filmmakers, to anybody in your audience who wants to write or direct or act. There's more distribution outlets. There's more eyeballs watching movies than ever before in the history of the world. And you can make them cheaper 
and better and faster than ever, you know, and it's a tremendous opportunity. I'm just, I'm having a resurgence in my career, largely due to Burt Reynolds, but it's unbelievable. It's just, it's been such a great run. When the other movie, the first Burt movie came out, there's a thing called Rotten Tomatoes, and half of it are the critics and all the published reviews about your movie, and the other half is the audience. Well, the the first Burt movie I made, Movie Money Confidential, we have an 80% critics rating, which is very high, and a 100% audience rating. I love the fact that I'm that attuned to my audience. The new Burt Reynolds movie, the one that you used in your opening, is we went to the Berlin Film Festival in February, which is very prestigious. The film debuted. We showed it to the foreign buyers, a huge you know, response from the airlines and the foreign buyers. And so the distributor was very, very happy with it. And so we released it on March 1st to critics. And on Rotten Tomatoes, as of today, I have a 100% critic rating on the Burt Reynolds' The Last Interview picture. And I mean, all of this technology, I love this instantaneous access to this. I don't have to wait for a weekly newspaper to come out and have my review. It's online. There it is for all the world to see. And it's unbelievable how great this technology is. And, you know, a lot of it is Burt sort of jump-started, you know, the resurgence of my career after the pandemic. And I'll just tell you real quickly, because I want to make sure that we fulfill you that beautiful introduction you gave me. Uh, So we called up the film office and I said, I I, I had done a lot of work here. They knew me. And I said, uh, I want to go through all the proper channels, but I wanted, I want to interview Bert for this movie. And the call came back, you know, Bert's sick. Now this process was six months. So we started calling and writing, but we went through the film office, the film commissioner. They, Bert had started the Palm Beach County Film Commission. He was very involved. They did a lot of things together. And I knew they were the people that I felt that they would help me. I could get an interview with Bert. Well, the word came back. He was sick. He couldn't do it. Now, this went on for whatever. So we shot for five weeks. Okay. It's a documentary feature. And so we got to the the Monday of the final week and Bert's person called and said, uh, uh, Bert's better. He'll do the interview Friday at seven o'clock. You can have him for 15 minutes, but you have to show up at his acting school. And we said, okay, you know, great. So we get into it. They're going to give us 30 minutes to set it up. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I've spent my whole life chasing Bert Reynolds. I'm filming him with three cameras, professional 4K equipment, a glider, all this stuff. I'm going to have great sound and great picture. You got to open the school early. So Scott DuPont, the producer, called me and said, look, you know, you're going to blow this whole thing. I said, no, I'm not going to run in there and film Bert and not make it look good. It's got to be done right. So they, the school says, okay, we'll open early. You can come at six o'clock and bring your crew. So we get in there and Maggie, who's the other producer, the production designer, and I look at the set in the school and I go, I can't film on this. And we start tearing down the banner and moving the furniture. And the head of the, one of the, the head guys at the school comes running in. He goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is Burt Reynolds. So you can't. I said, I'm a director's guild of America director. Get out of my way. I'm directing. You know, <laughs> and, you know, and, and luckily it worked oh and we my. rebuilt the set. So when Bert, when Bert got there, everything was set up for him, three cameras and lit and I'd rebuilt his little stage and Bert couldn't walk. He, he was having a lot of problems walking and uh, Scott put his arm out, you know, and helped Bert to his chair. 
And Bert came in and he looked around and there's this, you know, tense moment. And Bert goes, ah, you redecorated. He goes, I like what you've done with the place. So he sits down and we start the interview. And, you know, I've been told 15 minutes, that's it. Well, the movie we were making was about film financing. So I asked Bert a question. And he says, I don't know anything about that. I never was involved in that. I'd be bad at that. So he starts talking about something. And I'm like, I had that moment in my mind. He's not going to answer any questions that I ask that he doesn't want to. And he's not going to talk about anything that I want to. But I've spent my whole life chasing this guy. And my favorite book is J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rock. Catcher in the Rock. And there's this great... Yeah, and there's a great scene where Holden Caulfield is is says to the reader, you know, we're doing the book reports, and the teacher's always yelling to stay on the topic, but the kids would start telling stories that were more interesting than the books they were, you know, reviewing. And he said, I wish the teachers would. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to let Bert talk about anything he wants to talk about. What do I care? You know? And so every once in a while, I would come back and try to get in a question about film financing, and he would go, ah, I don't know anything about that. And I'm looking at my watch and the 15 minutes is up. And then Bert and I are sort of engaging and talking and we're, we're, I'm asking about this and what, what's important and what, you know, and blah, 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 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, 35 minutes. And Bert and I are now just engaged in a conversation. I'm making him laugh. He's making me laugh. And he's talking about his dad. He's talking about his career in Hollywood. He's giving advice for people. He's talking about what he had to go through to, to do certain things and how young people should get in the business. And I'm like, this is fascinating. And so we get to the one hour mark and I'm like, he's got his whole class behind me waiting to do their acting class. And I graciously thanked him and he thanked me. It was this unbelievable moment. And he waved at me. I had a lavalier mic and all this stuff on me. And I was behind the camera and he asked me to come over to his chair. So I came over and he said, I don't walk too well. Could you help me up and, and walk me to that black chair over there. I said, yes, sir. And I said, Maggie, come here. And I introduced him to my wife and they started talking and we got him in his chair. And he said, uh, first thing he said, he, he put his arms around me in a bear hug and he said, kid, let's make some pictures together. I've waited my whole life for that, Rick. My well, whole that life. is incredible. And Burt Reynolds is He's hugging me and he goes, let's make some pictures together. I was like, oh my gosh. So we, we get him over to the chair and he says, don't you want a picture with me? And I said, only if the crew can be in it. And he said, get him over here. So then we had a whole picture. The crew all came and got around Bert. He was sitting there. And it was just an unbelievable experience. And so we we carved out six minutes of the hour that I was able to put into my other movie. And Bert kept calling. He wanted to see the film. He wanted to see a rough cut. And we were editing. And then he said, I got cast in this Quentin Tarantino thing. I got to go out to Hollywood, to the Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, movie that Quentin Tarantino had written and was directing. So we said, okay, when you come back, we'll be ready. So he gave us some dates. So we've got a screening room. We booked it. Bert was all set. Bert went out to LA. He came back and he was reading lines for the script when he had a heart attack in his home. Oh, no. And it was a fatal heart attack. Oh, and my. I was home writing a treatment. 
I was writing a treatment for the next Burt Reynolds movie when I got the call that he'd passed away. We were devastated six days before my screening of the film for Burt. So it was devastating. Quentin Tarantino... Quentin Tarantino was also working on a film with him once upon a time in Hollywood, and he couldn't finish the film either. What happened there? Well, Quentin's actually in my new movie and explains the whole story. But in essence, Burt went out to L.A., they did a table read, and they did a rehearsal with the full cast, you know, with Al Pacino and Brad Pitt and all these actors. And everybody was in awe of Burt, and Burt did a great job. He flew back to Florida, and then he was going to fly back to shoot the movie. And he was rehearsing, reading the script, doing lines when he had his heart attack. It took his life. And it was totally unexpected. He was having an enormous resurgence in his career. He had a couple of other movies booked. It was just tragic. So what happened, Rick, in a nutshell, we got offers. People wanted to buy our footage. And then they wanted to chop it up or they wanted, I ended up with the last interview of Bert. And so people started calling and I talked to the film commission and I said, is, and they sort of monitored everything Bert did. Yeah. You have the last movie he did, the last interview. You have it. And people offered us huge amounts of money. And I felt, and I still feel that the interview with Bert changed my life. And Bert gave me a lot of great advice during the interview and after. And I just did not want to do anything that Bert would not have wanted me to do. And I did not want to sell any part of my interview or pictures to the tabloids or to anybody that might, because Bert didn't really like the tabloids. They weren't nice to him. And he didn't really like the press because they lied about him a lot. And he talks about it in the interview I did with him. So we sat on it for about a year. And the movie came out, Movie Money Confidential, and was very successful. And the distributor called up one day and said, do you have any other footage or any other material? And I said, well, I I have this hour with Burt Reynolds. And they said, could we see it? And what had happened a couple days earlier, my editor called up and he said, Rick, have you seen the full interview with Bert since he died? I said, no. He said, I went in to look at something for a trailer for the other movie, and I was going to spend five minutes, and I sat there for an hour, transfixed by Bert. And he goes, we have to do something with this. And so I thought about it. And then I said, could you just cut a rough assemblage together? And I have a, a very influential lawyer in Hollywood who does represents a lot of big independent films. And I think three of the last five years, his clients have won Oscars. I called him up and I sent it to him. And he called my wife, Maggie, and he said, there's a movie here. You've got to release this. So I became like a detective. What was Burt up to in Florida? What's the real Burt Reynolds that nobody ever saw? Not the tabloid, not the playboy image, the sex symbol, but the real Burt Reynolds. And what he did in this community for the people in this community, for the students and the kids and the scholarships and the theater and all the film commission. And I started digging into it and I went, there's a story here that's never been told. And I have one hour of the last, and it's what Burt wanted to talk about. And Burt, his assistant who drove him around and lived with him and called me up and said, you know, that was one of Bert's favorite interviews. And he said, the reason Bert wanted to see it, he had never been so off himself, his personal self. And he says, we really think you captured the real Bert Reynolds. And he really felt comfortable with you. And he said that his two favorite interviews were with Johnny Carson and Dinah Shore. And he put you in that category. And I, I mean, I was just you know, moved. I mean, it was unbelievable. So I started putting this thing. I spent a year. I researched everything on Bird in Florida. 
I had no interest in what he did in Hollywood. That's another movie or another story. But I, I covered the last 34 years of his life. And I found people that were the closest people to him. And I, they all said, no, I took them to lunch. No, we're not going to do this. And the film commissioner said, there's no, not enough money. I said, well, I'm not offering you any money. He said, I get, I get calls every day. They want to pay me money. I talked to his assistant, who was also the head of his school, Todd. People Magazine offered him $50,000 and he turned it down to do an interview about Bert. And none of Bert's friends wanted to talk about Bert. But my movie had come out and they saw the rapport that I had and how I treated Bert. And I initially, every single person in my movie that I went to said no. But eventually they said, well, let's have lunch again. And we'd have lunch and we'd talk. And well, what kind of movie, are you, what kind of questions are you going to ask? I said, I don't know. I said, I, I just want to tell the real story the real Burt Reynolds. And I said, I think it's a fascinating. And I found so much stuff, Rick, in this movie. So I made a rule. Every photograph, every interview, and every word spoken is 100% original. I have photographs people have never seen of Burt. I have private collections. And at the very end, the trail led back to Hollywood to Quentin Tarantino. And so we started calling Quentin Tarantino. Well, he's interested, but he's busy. He's doing his book tour. Uh, he's in Israel. Well, he'll be back. And this went on for months and months. And I signed a distribution contract and I had to deliver the film on, on December 1st. So I delivered the film to the distributor and they wrote me a letter and said, it's a beautiful film. We love it. We're proud to distribute it. You did great. Two days later, Quentin called. Hey, I'd like to be in the movie. I'm available till Friday. If you could come to my house in Los Angeles on Thursday and interview me about Bert, I'd love to be in the movie. I was like, oh, no, I just finished the movie. So I called my distributor. I talked. I slept on it. So we ended up interviewing Quentin after the delivery of the film. So we had to go back and recut the whole film, rescore it, do everything. But Quentin gave, I think, the greatest interview he's ever given about his lifelong admiration of Bert. And the last four weeks of Bert's life were all with Quentin. They were phone buddies and they worked on the script and Bert went out to L.A. And it's the most wonderful story. And I mean, Quentin Tarantino was just incredibly open and honest. And it, it's just a great interview. And it, the movie would have been incomplete without it. So this is a movie. If you're a Burt Reynolds fan, this is the real Burt Reynolds. No publicity, no hype. Nobody told us anything. There was no restrictions. Nobody you know, said, you can't say this or say that. This is Bert with the people that knew him best and the end of his life, what he looked like, what he cared about, what he wanted. He talked about his plans for the future. He talked about his family. He talked about everything. And it's all in this movie. And, and you know, some critics have said, I'm like a super fan. And you know what? I am. I love Bert and I don't care. This, I, I, I didn't want to, you know, I, I was just honored to spend an hour of my life with three cameras talking to Bert. Well, there we have it. Wow. What a wonderful story, everyone. Unfortunately, we're out of time for this week, but I'll tell you what. We are going to continue this with the movie director, Rick Pamplin. The movie is Burt Reynolds, The Last Interview. He's also the screenplay writer. I would like to thank his production staff and others who were involved in placing this show with me on the air without whose help it would have never have happened. Thank you, Mr. Pamplin. We'll see you next week and we'll wrap up this 
fascinating, fascinating tale of one of Hollywood's most loved actors. Uncut, unscripted, and uncensored as Burt Reynolds would have wanted it to be. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun, but I've got to run. Wow, what a tale we're in the middle of. Please come back and join us next week. We'd love to have you. Tell your friends the movie Burt Reynolds' The Last Interview. Movie director Rick Pamplin. A sensational guest will join us next week on Wednesday. So look for the conclusion of this two-part series then. Thank you, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Good night. The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.